Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Burr, it's cold. Uh, there's a passage in the New Testament in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he talks about head coverings and how it's a, a, a sin for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered and a sin for a man to cover his head while he's praying or prophesying. And John Calvin, a uh, pastor 500 years ago, teaching on that subject after affirming that truth, he says, um, but that doesn't mean on a cold day in St. Peter's, that I can't put a cap on when I'm cold. So, here we go. (laughs) D. Wayne handed me this, and he said, now you can be a hip pastor. (laughs) I don't even think with this, D. Wayne, can I be a hip pastor? It's pretty hopeless. Um, We are working through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we have come to chapter 3. We've actually been camped out here in chapter 3 for a while. And uh, we'll be for another few weeks. But we're going to start by reading our text this morning. This is Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, On the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've said already previously that this passage is about righteousness. It's about righteousness, where righteousness comes from how you get it, what it produces in your life. We talked last week about what righteousness is, that it means to meet or conform to God's holy standard of perfection. There's not like a range of righteousness that God's prepared to accept, like as long as you got 51% to 99%, somewhere in that range, that you're going to be okay with God. That's not how God approaches his righteous requirement. You got to have 100% righteousness to be good with God. So how are you doing with that? We talked about the importance of righteousness, that without it you can't have fellowship or peace with God. You can't have access to the life that is in God and the joy that comes from fellowship and being in his presence. Righteousness is more important than food and drink. You will die without sustenance, but you'll burn in hell forever without righteousness. So it's like the most important thing for us to obtain, if we can. We talked about how God defines righteousness, what it is, what is his standard of measure, what is righteousness measured against. It's, it's not 
your godly grandpa or grandma. It's not like an amazing missionary on the mission field. It's not John Calvin 500 years ago. It's not, your, it's not your mom. It's not your dad. It's not your pastor. That's not God's standard. His standard is way beyond that. Way beyond that. His standard is himself. He is the righteous one. And he says in his word that we are to be holy as he is holy. He's the standard. And he has given us his holy law to reflect his character and to tell us what it means to test ourselves against his righteousness. How are you doing keeping God's law? How do you measure up? So even though the law is given us to show us the righteousness of God, if we use the law, if we attempt to use the law as it were, like a ladder to climb up to him and to please him and to, to, to make ourselves righteous in his sight, then we are abusing the law. That's what scripture makes very clear. The law was given not for that purpose at all, but for this main primary purpose, which is to make sin utterly sinful, to like shine a spotlight on it for what it is so we can see it accurately, to hold a magnifying glass over it so we can look at it in all its horror. The law is meant to expose sin and to make it utterly sinful and to bind up everybody in disobedience. That's what, that's what the scriptures say the purpose of the law is. Paul admits, though, in the early verses of this chapter that he used the law in a backwards way. He abused it. He misused the law. He used it as a means for proving his righteousness, of, a, of showing that he was a man of substance, a man to be taken seriously. He's a holy man. That's how his, that was his relationship to the law. And he came to realize after his conversion, that, that, or at his conversion, that that was completely hopeless and wrong. Are, are you under the same delusion as Paul was before he was converted? What's your relationship like to God's law? Do you look to it to expose your sin and to show you what sin is? Do you look to it as a ladder you can climb up to God or a way you can get a leg up on other people? Well, something happened to Paul that completely changed his perspective entirely. I said last time that Paul writes here in this chapter as a man who has finally found the solution to his need for righteousness. He's finally found it. He writes like that. And he writes to have, help other people know that solution for themselves. But it's really more accurate to say that that solution found Paul. Paul was catastrophically confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The glorious risen Lord appeared to him on the road. We read about it in Acts chapter 9, which lays out the historical account of that encounter with Jesus and, his, and Paul's conversion. This passage, Philippians 3, gives us like the spiritual dynamics of what was going on in Paul's heart and mind. What's going on under the hood, as it were, of Paul's life as he's standing there or laying there blinded at the, and helpless at the feet of King Jesus, who's appeared to him. Paul saw... He was mercifully made to see the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. 
And he willingly, when he saw this, he willingly jettisoned all his former hopes, all his former claims of being good, um, and he, he just cast them overboard into the sea in exchange for this one claim, knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. Has anything like that happened to you? Anything analogous to that, where you've had a complete recalculation in your heart and mind about what's of worth? Jesus is the only worthy thing. Paul came to know that. And it forever changed him. He was never the same man after. He was sovereignly and powerfully converted. A new man, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things had come. He remained the same man, same stature and build, same hair color, eye color, same intellect and personality. All those things were the same. If you looked at him, you'd say, well, there's Paul again. I still see him. There he is. But everything inside was completely transformed. All of his way of thinking, the condition, uh, frame of his heart, completely new. Infused with incredible power, spiritual power, to change and transform his life. As he looked on Jesus and understood all that was offered him in his person and work. Someone told me that they don't like the Apostle Paul, that he's hard to understand and confusing. And he is. And I have it on Scripture's own authority. The Apostle Peter says in his letters, there are some things that are hard to understand. True enough. I had a pastor sit in my office about a week and a half ago and admit to me, I think that if I had known the Apostle Paul, I wouldn't like him very much. And he, I understand, I sympathize. He burned hot. People like that aren't easy to be around. But if we fail to appreciate and be willing to learn from and do the work to learn from this man and his life and his experience we cut ourselves off from incredible blessings and help and comfort for our soul. Paul was chosen by God to be like an emblem of God's miraculous saving power. In Paul, God chose to demonstrate not only what he can save, the worst of the worst, the chief of sinners, he can save him, but also what he can make of such a one as that by the power of his spirit given and poured out. That's Paul. I, if God had left us only the example of the 12 disciple apostles, the disciples of Jesus who became apostles, if that was all we had to go on, we would not understand half as well the nature of true spiritual conversion. Those men were converted too, every bit as really as the Apostle Paul, but in much less clear and dramatic fashion and from much less clear and overt hostility to the Lord. That's the way many people are regenerated. Many children of the church born into Christian homes come to know Jesus in a hard-to-discern time frame and way. It's not like often not like a clear moment or a decisive moment, and that's okay you got, you're in good company with the apostles. If you look at the, the record of the apostles' lives, it's hard to say when they got saved. It's not really possible to determine exactly. But with Paul, 
you know. You know when and where it happened, and you know what was happening at that moment, because he tells us about it here in Philippians 3. Through Paul, we have a man who is the dramatic demonstration of the awesome converting power of God. And his life and experience of grace is a study in the dynamics of that conversion. And that's probably actually what's most difficult about the Apostle Paul. He was all of a sudden so radically other, so completely sold out to Jesus, so willing to suffer anything cheerfully for the sake of his Lord, that it's really uncomfortable and difficult and not much appreciated to have to test our own experience of God's grace against that. It's uncomfortable. But that's who God has given us more than anybody else to learn from and to be tested by. And so let's humble ourselves today to look at what Paul has to teach us about the nature of his conversion, the nature of his faith, the the building blocks of faith. Every conversion experience is unique, but the elements that Paul lays out here are universal. If you don't have these elements that he's going to explain to us here, and and that they're not a part of your own experience in some degree, then you have not yet come to know the Lord as you should, or maybe not at all. In this passage, Paul puts a lot of stress on knowing Christ, knowing him, knowing Christ. Twice he mentions this, knowing Christ, in verse 8 and verse 10. Knowing Jesus became a thing of such surpassing value for this man, Paul, in this moment, that He was willing to sacrifice anything to obtain it, to have it, for the sake of it. And it's not a theoretical, intellectual knowing about Jesus that Paul envisions and experienced. It was, the word he uses in Greek conveys like an experiential, personal, relational knowing. It speaks of, of, of having a vital union between people. That's the kind of knowing that Jesus wants to have, or that Paul wants to have with Jesus, who he has seen and heard. The whole idea of a personal relationship with Jesus has been sentimentalized, romanticized, gayified in the evangelical world. It'd be tempting for us to like, ugh, kind of distance ourselves from the whole idea. But scripture doesn't let us do that. Paul says, this is the point. This is the great thing, knowing Christ Jesus personally, really. But he goes on, helpfully, to explain for us what that consists of. Like, what what are the mechanics of that relationship? How does it work? What does it consist of? That's what he starts to lay out for us today. He gives us two big elements of what it means to be in a vital, personal relationship that's saving with the Lord Jesus Christ here. We said last week, or I said that, I summarized them this way, that the first one is to know him as your righteousness. That's the first component, to know Jesus as your righteousness. That's in verse 9. And the second component being this, knowing his power at work within you to transform your character and motivate and direct your life. That's verses 10 and following. I think we can simplify it further than that and put it this way. 
To be in a saving relationship with Jesus is to know him for you. And second of all, to know him in you. To know him for you and to know him in you. Those two aspects of knowing Christ Jesus, they make up a full, saving, personal knowledge of him. You've got to know Christ in both those respects to be saved. But you have to know him in that order, the order that Paul gives them. For you first, and in you as a consequence of the first. Let's look at each of these. We're mainly going to focus on the first one today and delve into the second one next week. What does it mean, first of all, to be in a vital saving relationship with Jesus? It means to know Jesus for you. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the core principle of the gospel right there. The foundation stone on which the whole life of of a Christian is laid. If it's not laid on that stone, it's all other ground is sinking sand. You got it. You're built on on not solid ground. This is the solid rock upon which Christian faith is built, right here. So on his way to Damascus, in his his, uh, breathing out threats and violence and murder against the disciples of Jesus, Paul thought what? He thought he was righteous. He confesses that here in this passage. He thought he was good. He thought he was righteous. And suddenly he's confronted by the righteous one, the lawgiver, the one who who never sinned one time, who is righteousness himself, stood before Paul. And what did Paul see? Well, just like Isaiah, who had his own vision of God's glory. We, we read this at the beginning of the service, and we sang, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah had his vision of God and his exalted glory, and he saw his sin. And what Paul saw is every hope every claim, everything that he was hanging on to that he thought was a, proved his righteousness and his worth and commended him to God was exactly the opposite. He saw it was completely unmasked and exposed for hip, the, the hypocrisy and the false hope and the sin that it was. It did not commend him to God. And he saw that. Paul was introduced to reality. This is the reality for all of us. Have you seen it? Have, it? have you been introduced to reality? That your best efforts fall far short of the glory of God and you have incredible guilt that you're accountable for. That's what Paul saw, was made to see. He saw reality. And all of his best efforts were unmasked. He was unhorsed. But that's not all that Paul saw. At the same time, he saw, just as he saw his former hopes and confidences evaporate before him, he also saw that God provided him a way to be righteous. Fully immediately, completely, forever. 
God had provided a way to meet God's righteous requirements and to satisfy the law. That, was, that way was not in himself, but it was vicariously. You know that word vicariously? Through somebody else, through another, through a substitute, somebody who stood in for Paul, somebody who was righteous, who could satisfy the laws and had, had satisfied the law's demands. Paul could be righteous in Christ. That's what he came to see. Pardon my voice. I'll just get a swig of water. Jesus satisfies the law's demands in every respect, and he does it for his people. He did it for his people. Now that the law has been broken, we, you and me are lawbreakers. Now that the law has been broken, It demands to be satisfied in more than one sense. It's got all its positive requirements. Do this and you shall live. Here's the way to life. But it also has its penalty that it's pronounced for those who have broken it. And so for lawbreakers, the law demands to be answered doubly. And Jesus answers it doubly for his people. Listen to this, okay? This is important. You got to know this stuff. The law has a penalty for those who have broken it. What is the penalty? The wages of sin is death. The soul that has sinned shall die. That's the penalty that the law has pronounced, and it's in in force, and, and anyone who has broken the law is answerable to that part of the law. It's under its penalty. Jesus took that penalty of the law upon himself and he bore it on the tree and he satisfied that penalty for his people. We call this Christ's passive obedience where he accepted the curses and the pronouncements, the judgments of the law. He bore them himself in place of his people as their substitute, as their representative. He bore them on a tree. Jesus paid the price for sin that you and I could never pay. He paid it for us. Those who belong to Jesus understand themselves to have satisfied the penalty of the law in Jesus as he hung on the tree. It's fully satisfied and answered. Jesus, as our representative, was there before you were born, before you ever decided to choose him or to cry out and say, I need it. He came down and voluntarily submitted himself as a substitute for his people to pay the penalty for their sin and answer the curse of the law and satisfy it so that God could be both just as a punisher of sin and the justifier of men, the one who gives righteousness to men, not at no cost, but at an appropriate cost, the cost of the life of his son. That's what Jesus did. Isn't that good news? That's wonderful news. And Christians, those who believe in Christ, those who belong to him and live in vital union with him, 
understand that he did that. And as he did it, they were there in him by God's choice, satisfying the law's penalty and answering it. That's not all that Christ offers his people as their substitute. It's one thing to have your transgressions forgiven, your your sins washed away. That is not enough in itself to bring you to God. There's still the law's requirements. It says, do all these things. We have to come to God with a full righteousness, not just satisfy the penalties and be forgiven. We got to actually do the work of obeying God. What are you going to do about that? Is that all on you now that you've been forgiven? No, this is wonderful news. With regard to the law's positive requirements, the Son of God came down from heaven, took upon himself manhood, and obeyed God perfectly in every particular, in every way, with a pure heart, with pure motives, for God's glory, And he did that for his people as their representative. Not to prove anything for himself. He did it for us. He was there obeying God, fulfilling the law, never sinning one time as our substitute in our place. And those who belong to Christ understand that their account of righteousness has been completely filled up in Jesus. Nothing more to be added to it. Nothing more to be done. Jesus, as he went about working his righteous works, did them as our representative. So that, as as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He did it so that we could be considered fulfillers of the law. And come before God in him with a full account of righteousness. And have have nothing coming between us and God's own holy character. Nothing preventing fellowship with the holy and righteous God. Jesus did that. And he offers it to his people. He did it for them. That part of the gospel, the active obedience of Christ, as we call it, is not talked about a lot. But it's a very powerful and precious truth. There's a theologian named Gresham Machen uh, from some years ago who was a theologian, I think, at Princeton, back when Princeton was good. Good place to go study theology. Not so much anymore. But he said this. This is one of the last recorded statement that we have of his life. This is very near his death. He was writing to his friend John Murray. He sent him a telegram. This was back in the days of telegrams. And it said this. This is it. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful truth. Jesus has obeyed God perfectly for you if you believe and accept that he has, and accept the gift of that record for yourself. I said last week that the law's ministry is a ministry first and foremost of condemnation, accusing, condemning. And that's true. That's what its first and primary use is. That's what it's for. 
The Bible says that apart from Christ, the law is hostile to us. It's hostile to us. But when we trust in Jesus, something amazing happens with regard to the law and its relationship to us and its condemning voice in our life and in our conscience. Something amazing. It is silenced towards us forever. No more condemnation for you. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to be found in him. If you can be found in Jesus, there's no condemnation for the law because he's fulfilled it in every respect. He's defanged the law. He's absorbed all of its venom himself. He's taken out the hostility of it by taking it on himself. And he's fulfilled all its requirements and answered its demands. And so it's not hostile at all to his people anymore. Which is the only way King David could possibly say what he says over and over again about God's law in the Old Testament. Oh, how I love your law. You can't say you love the law if it's hostile to you. David knew, as Paul knew, that God is my righteousness, and I'm his, and he is mine. And so the law can do a lot of good things. It can humble us. It can lead us to Jesus. It can show us the way, the, the new, in newness of life, the way of obedience. But one thing it can't ever do again, if you are in Christ and trust in him, is condemn you. That's something you've got to preach to yourself. When you're awake at night and troubled, you've got to preach that to yourself. When you're afflicted by your sins and tempted, you've got to preach that to yourself. Christ is sufficient for you. Christ is sufficient for you. And you can come to God in a good conscience through faith in him. Those who are not in Christ are fully under the obligations and the penalty of the law. So this is vital. You've got to know Christ in this way. If you don't, if he's not your substitute, your law fulfiller, then... You are the law fulfiller and accountable to all the law. It's positive demands upon you and it's penalties for sin. How are you going to answer that? You're going to stand before God someday, every one of you, and give an account. Everything about you exposed. You want to be found on that day in you, John, in you, Don, in you, you have the opportunity to be found in Christ, his perfections, and to be passed over by the death angel of God's judgment and wrath, and to be accepted of the Father. 
and to have his voice say, well done, good and faithful servant. The only way you can do that is if you stand in the righteousness, the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll never get there on your own. You'll only condemn yourself. How do you come to have Jesus as your representative, as your substitute? Paul explains it here in verse 9 very clearly. Righteousness, he says, is that which comes from God. That's what you want. Not anything that flow can do. (laughs) Only that which comes from God. And it comes to you on the basis of faith. That's how it comes. Christ performs it. He accomplishes it. He stands for it. And it can be yours on the basis of faith. Simply by believing in him and trusting and receiving this gift. Paul puts it even more clearly in Romans 4, verse 5. He says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies and makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Faith is what acquires the righteousness that Christ has performed and makes it your own. His faith is credited, counted for him as righteousness. Is faith then a work? We, oh, we get rid of all the other things. We get rid of our ceremonies and our rituals, and we just have faith. Faith is the new work. That's the Christian work. No, that's contrary to the clear teaching of God. In, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the instrument by which you take hold of the goodies from Christ. By faith you've been saved And that not of yourselves. You didn't work up faith in yourself. It was a gift from God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's a wonderful book that our church has been involved with others in republishing back from, I think, from the 1800s by a pastor named, wait for it, Horatius Bonar. The Scottish man. And the book is called Peace and Holiness. I think there's one or two copies left in the church office for sale. We can get some more if they, if, if they sell out. This is an awesome book. Both of the aspects of what it means to know Christ, knowing him for you and knowing him in you, are laid out in amazing detail and, and descriptiveness in this book. It's a really wonderful book. I've been Chewing on it uh, this last week. Loving it. But here's what he said about faith. The office of faith is not to work, but to cease working. Not to do anything, but to own that all is done. Not to bring near the righteousness, but to rejoice in it as already near. Isn't that beautiful? That's what faith is. It's acceptance. Acceptance of that Christ has done it. And he did it for you. Do you accept it? Being found in Christ is an all or nothing proposition. You can't be 50% in yourself and 50% in Jesus. You can't be 90% in Jesus and 10% in yourself. It's all or nothing. 
Are you trusting him in that way? Surrendering your whole life and your whole hope and for righteousness to him. If you are, that's what it means to have Christ for you. For you. That's the foundation stone of the Christian faith. The starting point. The doorway into everlasting life. If you won't enter by this door, then you cut yourself off from all the rest that there is. And there is more to knowing Jesus and to experiencing him in your life powerfully. This is the doorway. And if you don't enter through the door, which is his righteousness for you, then you cut yourself off from all that is to come. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Have you, are you entering through the door of Jesus? This is the door that leads to life. It's called in scripture a narrow door. How do you feel when you read that? When you say, when you realize that there's a broad way and a narrow way. There's a broad gate and a narrow gate. How do you feel? Doesn't it make you kind of feel like, oh shoot, I got to work hard to get, make sure I get in that narrow gate? I don't think that's what it means. It says that what it means is only that it's narrow because not very many people find it. But you know what? Nobody finds it without Jesus finding them. Has he found you? Do you want to be found? The Christian life begins here. And this is Christ for you. But for those who enter through the door of Christ, there's more to experience by way of knowing him than this. There's something more than just having him for you that makes for a full and saving relationship to Jesus. There's a necessary second part which flows naturally from the first. Paul talks about it in verses 10 and following. We're just going to dip our toes in it this week and come back to it next week. To know Christ in you. To know his power at work within you to transform your character and motivate your life. Paul tells us that he's not content to merely know Jesus vicariously as his substitute, as wonderful and amazing as that is. He wants more. He wants to know his power in his life, the transforming power. Here's how he says it in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed myself to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's experiential talk. It's like, I, I don't just want this exchange of righteousness judicially. I want something to be experienced powerfully in my life. And that's how he talks about it here. And we'll open it up more in detail next week. Both of those ways of knowing Jesus are essential. They go together, but they go together in this order, for you, and then in you. Let's just end with this. Do you have Jesus for you? Is he your substitute, your righteousness? Are you resting in him, hoping in him? Are you going to be found in him on that day by faith?
This is the do not pass go, do not collect $200 of Christian life. Christ for you is the start, the beginning, the bedrock, the foundation. So turn from your sins to Christ. Turn from your sins to Christ. He's fully paid for them and answered the law's curses that you deserve. Done. Fully paid up. There's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. You can't, like, if you have been, if you were there in Christ by faith, as he hung on the tree and died for sin, that's not coming up for you again. It's like it's paid for and done. And God's not going to sort of come around someday and sort of retry you. There's no recrimination in faith. You can understand yourself to be forgiven completely forever. So turn from your sins to Christ. That's a good place to turn to. Turn from your works to Christ. Christ's works are perfect. They answer all the requirements of the law. He alone is worthy to stand in God's presence and have his commendations for his law-keeping. You can never do it. So turn from your works to Christ's works, as Paul did, and trust him to be sufficient for you and to make you able to, be, to stand in God's presence, blameless with great joy. All of that simply by believing. It's amazing. Do you believe? I believe. I believe. Christ is for me, and I, I want to be in him. Do you believe? I hope you do. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of your son Jesus and his amazing work for his obedience his sacrifice, how he has answered all the requirements of your law, and he did that for us. Oh, Lord, help us to be found in him by faith. Help us to come under the blood of Jesus. Help us to trust in his righteousness for us. And Lord, I pray that for every one of us, every, every child, every man, every woman here, that they would believe and be saved. In Christ's name, amen.